Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Words, Images, and Worlds. This is episode maybe 193, something like that, 192, somewhere in the 190s. And I am delighted on this episode to be talking. With, can I use the word legend? Is that okay? Uh, no, that doesn't apply. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, uh, comics creator, teacher, uh, editor, publisher, and uh, literacy advocate, I think I can say that based on some of the things that we'll talk about, uh, Carl Potts. May I call you Carl? Is that yep. all right? That's, Mr. Potts was my father. Right. Just call me Carl. All right. All right. Sounds good. Um, most people out there that are listening probably know you primarily through comics work. Uh, Punisher probably being the character that you're uh, most associated with in the Publisher War Journal. Well, I guess, I mean, I, I had very eclectic tastes. At the same time I was editing The Punisher, I was editing Power Pack, mm -hmm, Rock, mm -hmm. Rock, Rocket Raccoon, mm -hmm. Doctor Strange, uh, The Hulk, um, What what The, our self-parody mm -hmm. movie. So uh, hopefully I'm, I'm known for a lot more than that. I also uh, was a primary creator on Alien Legion. So yes. I really like, uh, I have eclectic tastes, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things that I love to say about comics on here, which is that they they're not just one thing. There are so many types of stories, and you can be really eclectic. Uh, even in the world of Marvel, the all the characters and titles you mentioned there, they have their own flavor and they have their own distinct take. Yeah. So, so what was it about? <clears throat> the world of comics that drew your talents as a as a writer, artist, editor, and creator. Well, I think like a lot <clears throat> a lot of people uh, growing up in my era, the um, you know comics were a big part of it. Um, back then, newsstand distribution had comics. Basically, you would run into them no matter. What you did during the course of the day, you'd run into a spinner rack of comics, either at the drugstore, the grocery store, bus stop, uh, you know, the um, candy store, barbershop, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I got hooked on, on comics early and the combination of uh, the visuals with the text uh, holds a special magic if it's done right. And um, I realized at some point, I guess maybe around some point in high school that, you know, there were actually real humans that did this for a living. Mm -hmm. And I me, I wonder if it's possible for me to join those ranks. Um, I was always drawing and uh, often coming up with story ideas and bits. And uh, so I decided I was raised in the, the Northern California suburbs and I decided very naively that uh, in the summer of 75, I was going to move to New York and try and break into the professional ranks. And I'd uh, made some friends with some comics pros who had moved from New York to the Bay Area. And they, they were helpful in making some connections for me and, and uh, making sure I wasn't just a total wide-eyed, you know, deer in the headlights in New York. Um, and uh, I got into a Marvel show, my portfolio, and I showed my portfolio a couple of years before at the San Diego Con to Neil Adams, who, uh, after basically telling me uh, the work wasn't worth commenting on, uh, finally co coaxed him into asking, uh, telling me 
what aspects to work on. And after you named very, basically every aspect of comics creation that there was, told me if I worked real hard for a year and a half, he'd be willing to look at my work again. So when I went to New York, I showed him my portfolio again, and he hired me to be part of a, a continuity studios team that was turning out um, these large black and white comics magazines for Charlton based on TV shows at the time, Six Million Dollar Man, Emergency, and mm-hmm. Space 1999. And uh, I got into doing a lot of uh, commercial arts for ad agencies, storyboards, and comps. And uh, eventually uh, started creating some material and got some of it placed at Marvel's Epic Illustrated Magazine. And uh, at some point, even though I'd never thought about being an editor, never even talked about it i got a call out of the blue from uh, marvel's editor-in-chief at the time asking me to join the editorial staff and uh i thought about it and i thought you know it'd be kind of a neat thing to do uh, for a while anyway i ended up being there 13 years so uh, most of that time it was a great job i was uh, when uh, the leadership was right at the company I strongly believe in a top-down work culture. If um, we, you know, for most of that time I was there, we were fortunate enough to have a culture that we worked hard and we had a great time doing it. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, almost everybody got along. Not everybody got along, but almost everybody got along. And we often pals around socially as well as uh, professionally. And um, but that has to be modeled from the top down when the top changes um, it's very difficult to maintain the culture uh, in the other rest of the ranks mm-hmm. and uh, that happened a couple times uh, during my period there and i could see the change and uh, see how it not only affected the, the culture and the mood but also uh, the fortunes of the company i don't think it's any i don't think it's a total coincidence that marvel's most successful publishing period coincided with the period that it had the best uh, work culture. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. The I environment answer, affects the product. I, I answer your question. I just go off on some weird tangent. No, no, you're, you're great. That was great. And um, you mentioned sort of coming in and being um, guided along and helped by folks. So I know that one of the things uh, that I found out about you is that you did that in turn. You sort of paid that forward. And you mentioned Power Pack. I, I think Gene Brigman is one of those people that you worked with early on. Um, any other creators and names of people that you mentored that you'd like to, to mention? Well, I, I decided when I was an editor that I, would, I wanted to change a, something that would been standard in the business for a long time, which is that a lot of people who wanted to work for Marvel would send in, like I did, their samples, uh, unsolicited samples, and they'd either never get a response or get a response ages later with a form letter, a rejection letter that told them nothing useful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so you'd walk into the offices and see these piles and piles of these submissions, and at some point uh, they'd get a rejection letter or the, an assistant editor would look at them and send a rejection letter. Um, and uh, I felt these are your most ardent fans. They like what you do so much. They want to be a part of you. Mm-hmm. And it 
ethically it didn't it wasn't right but also on a marketing level you know why would you chance alienating your most ardent fans right so i vowed that every person who sent a um, submission directly to me not to marvel in general but to me uh, got a quick response that told them something useful Mm, and good uh, yeah my first day on the job, I was replacing Al Milgram, who was leaving staff to go freelance uh, writing and drawing for the company full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he stayed on my first week there to help me uh, get sorted out on the job. And that first day on the job, we were going through all the submissions that had piled up in his office. And my first day on the job, I discovered this guy named Art Adams. So I was mm-hmm. off to a pretty good start there. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, I also would look at portfolios for hours and hours at conventions. And uh, first San Diego I went to as a as a editor, I discovered Will Spertasio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to be known as the guy. If you want to get a quick response from Marvel, to send your stuff to. And so of course that it ended up being like editing another book because <laughs> all this stuff came in. And then the people who showed talent uh, but weren't there yet, I assigned them a six-page story to try them out to see how their visual storytelling was and uh, their drawing in general. It was called Double Vision, a Tom DeFalco story that was so packed that it could easily be a 10-page story instead of a six-page story. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like throwing them in the deep end of the pool. And I'd have them do layouts, and uh, then I'd go over them and do overlays and then go through the, the... the light pencils and then the finished pencils, each giving them critiques along the way. Sometimes they go into the inks as well. And eventually a, a system evolved that it was almost like a um, professional baseball team where um, I had my pros working on my monthly titles. Mm-hmm. I had my AAA working on uh, fill-ins, annuals, uh, one-shots, miniseries, that sort of thing. And I had my AA people working on this double vision tryout story. Mm. And so eventually when, um, you know, someone got lured away elsewhere, the X-Men office had a habit of heisting these people that once they got that popular, um, instead of me, you know, trying to rob from some other editorial office to fill the slot, I could often bring someone up from the farm system that I'd been developing. Uh, and uh, that worked out pretty well for the most part. Yeah, yeah, that's a very thoughtful way to go about that. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did because um, I got to meet and and help and also learn from a lot of uh, you know really talented people along the way. But June, I did not actually discover uh, Louise Simonson, the, the the writer who was the initial creator of Power Pack. She had connected with June, and June had been, um, June was a relatively rare case of a comics artist who could draw really good kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you ask most really good comic artists who are used to drawing, you know, pretty bombastic, uh, hyper heroic representationalism, I call it, and that's when draw a kid, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, so um, uh, she did great kids. She'd gotten training by drawing uh, portraits of kids. Uh, as a summer job at a uh, big amusement park down south, but not caricatures, but actual representational portraits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so 
Parapac was her first uh, job uh, on a regular book, and uh, it was uh, a little tough going for her, but she uh, she did a fabulous job, and uh, yeah. I, I helped as, as much as I could, but I think she gives me more credit than, uh, than I deserve. She was pretty damn good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's... Uh, and that kind of interesting story with the, uh, I tell my students at School of Visual Arts that you should always be as versatile as you can on the subject you draw well. And I give that example of drawing kids. Her her career was launched because she could draw kids really well. Mm-hmm. And then when she decided finally to, to go do some other work, uh, branch out, uh, Louise Simonson and I were sitting in my office one day trying to figure out who the heck we're going to get to replace June. And... Um, there was an artist that came up to Marvel and was showing his portfolio around to different artists trying to get work. And well, I'm talking to Louise Simonson, uh, also known as Wheezy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The um, this person came in and showed me the portfolio work and it, talented stuff, but wasn't anything I needed right then and there. And as he was closing his portfolio from the side pocket, slide out a couple of sketches of his neighbor's kids that he'd done, and they were perfect. And that was how John Bogdanoff got his start in the business. Oh, wow. So, wow. Um, by a, a really good comic artist has to be able to draw anything real or imagined at the same high level of convincingness. Mm-hmm. And say you draw one thing well, like say you draw uh, people really well, but your vehicles are really horrible. Mm-hmm. And you draw a scene where someone's next to a car, riding in a car or something, and that. Uh, the, the reader's eye isn't going to go that fabulous person you do. It's going to go that wonky thing they're, they're in. And, right. and it's going to break the suspension of disbelief and take them out of the flow of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if, um, and then even things that you make up, fantastic things, whether it's creatures or mechan- mechanized things or uh, environments, they have to have the same level of convincibility that, the stuff you draw really well does in order to maintain that suspension of disbelief. Yeah, yeah. So that that also leads into um, talking a little bit more about your teaching. Um, what was it that led you from the world of publishing to the world of teaching? And I ask that as a teacher and as someone who, who loves teaching as well. Uh, well, I guess the mentoring I did at Marvel was kind of the, the first step along mm-hmm. that path. And then... Uh, uh, for several years after I left Marvel, I was for several years a uh, creative director at a non-profit education company here in New York that basically focused on uh, middle school uh, programs because um, in New York, the uh, dropout rate in high school was uh, horribly high. Mm. And um, I figure the real time to try and catch them and get kids caught up would be in, in middle school mm-hmm. so uh, they worked on uh, a number of literacy programs there and also some civil rights programs and often there were uh, short animations that went along with that and, uh, other kind of comic like material as well but uh, uh, that was a uh, kind of fun and rewarding work for a while uh, but at some point, uh, I was talking to someone I'd worked with uh, in the comics field for a long time, and uh, uh, Klaus Janssen, mm-hmm. 
a longtime teacher at the uh, School of Visual Arts. And uh, I, I mentioned how much I was interested in teaching because I think, uh, you know, you could investigate. So he put a word in for me at, at the chairman of the department and uh, I started teaching there. And I initially started teaching senior portfolio classes there. Uh, then they, um, they asked me to work on the, the junior thesis classes. And then I created uh, my own class called Building Fictional Worlds, where students who have an idea for their own intellectual property, their own story world and characters, and they build a, what basically is a pitch Bible mm -hmm. around it, where they figure out uh, the overall art for the, the story uh, and each character. Uh, they not only design them, they have to, to write their bios in the background and uh, what their conscious and subconscious needs and desires are and uh, internal and external conflicts that go along with that. Mm -hmm. And um, they also draw the first handful of pages for whatever it is that they're doing, graphic novel or comic or storyboards for animation. Um, and uh, that class has uh, become very successful. It's like uh, it requires, I, I kind of chastise myself sometimes because it requires the most work per student <laughs> for the class I teach. And uh, it's become pretty popular now. The classes are usually full. Um, but uh, it's fun to see, uh, you know, these students come in with these They've, they've had all these nebulous story ideas kind of orbiting around their head for a long time. And they, they, mm -hmm. they feel they're fabulous, uh, but they haven't really tried putting it down in concrete form or giving it any structure. And sometimes it's a real struggle for them to, uh, to focus and create a real story out of all these nebulous things that have been orbiting in their brain. Yeah. And uh, some are more successful at it than others. But uh, generally, I think... Uh, uh, it works for the for the most part. Uh, the, the methods that I, I use in the class to get them, uh, yeah. it's, it's it's rewarding. Hopefully, um, they think so too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure. And uh, it sounds like you're a person who is committed to giving quality feedback, which uh, adds to the workload, but is also it's so important for that yeah. that whole process or any process. And having. Uh, you know, extensive background on both the story side and the art side, um, and having literally writ written the book on sequential visual storytelling, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I feel I have to give feedback on all those fronts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sometimes, uh, sometimes I think uh, the, the students uh, maybe getting overwhelmed, but. Uh, I don't know, they're, they're paying for this education. I figure they should get their money's worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're making me think about two things uh, just in, in what you were saying, which is I completely agree about the importance of middle grades. I was a middle grades teacher for uh, eight years and continue to serve with middle grades organizations. And the other thing that you said was uh, sort of the, the breakdown of this class that you do. And it just reminds me that I don't know that there's anything narratively uh, or in the world of literature that you can't practice in some way as a storyteller in comics. Um, and in thinking about the education side, I, I don't know that there's anything that I teach 
that I can't necessarily teach either with comics or through comics. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there probably is, but I can't think of it. Uh, <laughs> the, the uh, there have been classes where there have been um, students who, for instance, did a comic about how to create different recipes they had. Mm -hmm. um, and in theory, you could use that for, you know, a step-by-step -step process for anything, whether it's a scientific biological process or uh, any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, uh, Will Eisner for years worked for the U.S. military doing uh, comics that, um, you know, visually showed how to field strip and clean your weapon and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. So it, it's possible to, you know, do something very clear with clear visual instructions uh, for a lot of topics. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of super cerebral stuff that probably wouldn't go well. Just kind of like, um, you know, long comic sequences that have big conversations. I remember one time seeing a, an adaptation of some Sherlock Holmes story uh -huh. where it seemed like for dozens of pages it was Holmes and Watson sitting in chairs talking thinking, <laughs> right. oh my you know you've got to really use a variety of angles and compositions to make that visually interesting yeah uh, and uh, but that, that that's a challenge yeah no nobody's rushing to do the comics adaptation of waiting for Godot I don't think I don't think that's <laughs> out there <laughs> yeah um so, so as we're coming to the toward the end of our conversation, um, just a couple of closing questions, and then anything that you want to add that we've not talked about. One of those questions is: anybody in the industry right now, um, any upcoming creators or new creators or titles um, that have caught your eye that you'd like to to shine a light on? Well, I'm afraid I don't keep up with stuff as much as I should. I occasionally go down to my local comic shop and and look at stuff and then the students often bring in stuff and uh, show me mm -hmm. <clears throat> but as for a comprehensive view it's hard for me to make uh, out one, one of the things i do think that's just fabulous these days is that um the graphic novel market has grown considerably and since i like variety the, the number of genres and subjects that are available out there has never been wider mm -hmm. uh, true and uh, I think that's really good. Uh, my guess is that, well, also, when I first started teaching, most of the, the students in my classes, uh, the population was heavily male and mostly interested in mainstream. Mm -hmm. These days, uh, most of my classes have more female students. And um, it's very rare I get someone who's in the mainstream anymore, which is a little sad. Uh, they're mostly interested in, a, you know, a very wide category called called indie, which uh -huh. covers a lot of territory. Yeah. Uh, are there kind of manga or anime kind of influenced in their work? Um, I really credit back in the um, the nineties when uh, uh, manga first started being racked in some of the bookstores, particularly when Walden's was around. Mm -hmm. uh, I was amazed to go into a Walden's and see all these. Uh, you know, adolescent girls sitting around reading all the manga stuff 
whereas before then, you know, female readership was very low in comics in general. Yeah. And I really think it was uh, that interest in manga that really sparked uh, and got female readership up for comics in general. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And right. um, many connections were made for me in Walden's as a young person, yeah. for sure. Yeah, it was a shame when they, they had to go out of business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lots of time in the comics rack there um, exploring as, as well as other parts of the store, too. And uh, I don't know if there's anybody in your audience that's interested, but amongst the, the classes I teach, in, in addition to the uh, the undergrad classes, I do teach continuing ed classes for School of Visual Arts. So, um, and they've, they've been online since the pandemic started and they never got offline. I'm not sure if we're going to go back to online or not because even though I really prefer teaching in person, um, the online classes allow anybody who speaks English anywhere in the world uh, to take classes. So I've had students from Sri Lanka and India to Japan, Brazil, uh, Alaska, you know, they know we're within, uh, you know, commuting distance to New York City. So um, uh, I I wish there was a way to actually combine them both. But so far as he's, this is, I think, one or two uh, classrooms that are set up to do simultaneous uh, in-person and online classes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. hopefully, maybe when they get that, more of those up, uh, I'll, I'll try that as well. Yeah, the, but, that, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, if, they, if anybody's interested, they just go to uh, type in SVA continuing it and it'll take them to the screen there. They, they offer classes in all, all the visual arts. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that, that was actually going to be my last official question, which is um, ways that listeners can connect with your teaching, with, with any projects, events, or anything like that that you'd like to share about. That's uh, the best way I do. Uh, post on uh, Facebook. I think it's open in public. I haven't checked my settings yet. I'm pretty sure it's open. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a Twitter account, but I hardly ever, ever post on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Instagram. I've never used that yet. I just uh, I need to ask one of my kids to set it up so it automatically springs to all of those platforms whenever I post something on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. It's just uh, check out Facebook or uh, go to the SVA Continuing Ed site. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sounds great. And um, thank you for your time, the the work that you've done in sort of building along creators and um, the work in literacy that you've done. Did I miss anything that you want to make sure to include? Uh, not off the top of my head. All right. Uh, we, we try. We try. Yeah. They're brief episodes, but I try to be pretty comprehensive. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, again, thank you so much for a great conversation. And I'm glad to share share about your work, share about your teaching uh, and your mentorship. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.